Ammonium, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium. So I told you last week that we would be back, and uh, here we are. We are back. And uh, with my usual questions to start off the show. So here we go. Founded in 1946 as the Communicable Disease Center, today we know it as the CDC or the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. And Atlanta was chosen due to the area's high rate of what disease? So the CDC is located in Atlanta. And the question is, why was Atlanta chosen? And it was due to the area's high rate of a disease. What disease was that? The other question. Uh, In this past June, Canada passed a bill about cosmetic safety. What does the bill prohibit? So a new bill passed in Canada about cosmetic safety. What does it prohibit? So anyway, last night I watched... uh, Novak Djokovic uh, take uh, Alex Zverev apart. And uh, this afternoon, Novak is going for the title in the Southern and Western Open, which is the prelude to the U.S. Open. And uh, he's going to be up against the world number one, uh, Carlos Alcaraz. And Novak now is is number two. This is going to be a a, a great match. Uh, Why am I talking about this? I like Novak Djokovic, a great player, and from all the interviews to which I've listened, he seems like a nice guy, and he always gives credit to his opponents. I like that. I didn't like his opposition to vaccines, and some of his approach to health, uh, pretty bizarre. Like the reason he adopted a gluten-free diet. Dr. Igor Setoyevich, a fellow Serb, asked Novak to hold a slice of bread against his stomach with his left hand and stretch out his right arm, which the doctor then attempted to push down. Since he was now able to push it down more easily than in the absence of the bread, he diagnosed gluten sensitivity. Ever since then, Djokovic has followed the gluten-free diet and has also eliminated dairy. He doesn't want sugar in his diet, yet starts every day with two spoonfuls of honey. In any case, the diet seems to work for him, and, and you know, he credits it for, for his success. Well, I, well, I can stomach uh, Novak's uh, skimpy knowledge of science. Uh, I have uh, trouble with his endorsement of Anthony William, the self-anointed medical medium. That turns my stomach. According to the tennis ace, Anthony has turned numerous lives around for the better with the healing powers of celery juice. Well, let me introduce you to William. Here we have an individual who has amassed over 3 million followers on Instagram and Facebook, has written a number of bestsellers about healing various diseases with food, and he dispenses medical advice on the radio as well as on his own website and uh, on that of Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop. He has earned the respect of celebrities such as Robert De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, and Hilary Swank. And with what scientific background has he accomplished all this? 
Absolutely none. Zilch. Zero. Given that he had no help from any science education, how did the medical medium attain such lofty heights? Well, he has had help from a spirit with whom he has been communicating since the age of four, one who, quote, provides him with extraordinarily acute health information that's far ahead of its time. This allows William to read people's conditions and tell them to recover their health. It seems the spirit is an expert in toxicology because through William, he reveals that cilantro can remove toxic heavy metals from the brain. So what medical literature has the spirit been reading? A search of PubMed does not come up with a single study that has examined the effect of consuming cilantro on heavy metals in the human brain. Not one. A couple of studies have examined what happens when brains contaminated with lead are treated with cilantro. But these were rat brains that are decidedly different from human brains, although perhaps not in all cases. Rats fed food contaminated with lead were treated with a cilantro seed extract before being sacrificed. Their brains were then examined for damage due to lead. The toxicity of lead is in part due to the role it plays in producing free radicals. And those are the highly reactive species that can damage tissues. And there was somewhat less lead-induced free radical damage in certain areas of the brains of the treated rats. In no way does this demonstrate removal of the lead from the animal's brains, and the cilantro extract contained far more cilantro components than anyone would ever consume in a diet. Such animal studies are light years away from a salad with cilantro accomplishing any sort of heavy metal detoxing in people. Such a claim would require a demonstration of there being a heavy metal problem in the first place and its reduction with cilantro. A PubMed search for cilantro detox yields zero entries. <clears throat> Similarly, there's no basis to claim that cilantro can reduce water weight as a cancer fighter and can improve memory with its brain-protecting vitamins and minerals. The medical medium, or I suppose his spirit guide, goes beyond claiming that cilantro removes heavy metals from the brain. This magical herb is also said to be antiviral, able to keep levels of the Epstein-Barr virus low, a virus that, according to William, is responsible for virtually all human ailments. Furthermore, cilantro is also antibacterial, he says. It helps to fight off virtually every form of bacteria and flush its waste from the body. It's also anti-worm. Needless to say, there's no evidence for any of this. But hey, who am I to argue with this great sage and his spirit guide? How then do we explain the enormous following that William has accrued and the stunning number of people willing to take nutritional and medical advice from someone who has no expertise in either area, as is readily admitted in the extensive disclaimer on his website? Why do they buy his books and the numerous dietary supplements he promotes? What is the formula for such success? Scientific illiteracy plays a role, as does disenchantment with a medical community that has failed to conquer all diseases and is forced to pepper its language with ifs and buts and maybes and more research is needed. There's also the belief that effective nutritional cures are being hidden from the public by nefarious profit-driven pharmaceutical industry and that champions like William can reveal them. 
Add to this the popular notion that detoxing with various foods, herbs, and juices offers protection from all the poisons that industry unleashes into the environment, and you have the public's attention. To complete the formula, throw in that you get help from angels in addition to your spirit contact, and finally elevate some dietary components such as celery juice to a magical status, describing it as, quote, the most powerful medicine of our time, healing millions worldwide. Never mind that there's no evidence for such a claim. By now, you have given people simple solutions to complex problems, and they lap it up. What do we make of William himself? Is he just a clever charlatan with an overabundance of chutzpah who has managed to fool a lot of people and evade being charged with practicing medicine without a license by claiming that he's just relaying advice from a spirit? Or is he really in contact with the spirit of a doctor who is in the afterlife has discovered methods of healing unknown to earthly physicians? Or does William just hear voices that have nothing to do with spirits, in which case the possibility of mental illness has to be considered? I wonder which of these options Novak Djokovic would favor. I really don't know. But uh, in any case, uh, I wish him uh, good luck against uh, Carlos Alcaraz this uh, afternoon. And hey, if he's playing tennis the way he is because he's on a gluten-free diet and drinking celery juice, I'm not going to argue. No, that's not true. I will argue. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin, and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calciumate, soybean oil, butter fat, carbon center. I'll eat that. I did get a correct answer to one of my questions about what disease was rampant uh, around Atlanta and the reason why the Centers for Disease Control was located in uh, Atlanta, and that was malaria. Uh, malaria was uh, very, very widespread in the southern uh, U.S. in the 1940s. And, of course, malaria is still around today. I mean, we don't see it here in, in, uh, in Canada, but in the in Africa, rest of the developing world, malaria is still a, a, a huge, huge uh, problem. But I'm still looking for the answer to my other question about uh, a bill passed in Canada this past June that prohibited something to do with cosmetics. What uh, did that bill uh, prohibit? All right, and let me give you uh, another question that, uh, that you can now uh, ponder. Pepto-Bismol can turn your stool black. Why? What is that black color? What is the black color? And, you know, that can be sort of an unnerving thing if you forget that you've taken some Pepto-Bismol and you find that your stool turns black. What is that color? If you know the answer, 514-790-0800 is the number to call. That is also the number that you can call with any question or comment. And you can, of course, text your questions or comments to 514-800. All right. Uh, let me talk a little bit about electricity and biofuels. <clears throat> Let's go back for a moment to 1882, September 4th, 3 p.m. What happened? Well, Thomas Edison turned on the generators at the Pearl Street Station in Lower Manhattan 
and America's first electric grid was born. That grid, of course, has been extended tremendously, but we'll have to still increase significantly as we switch to powering our cars with electricity. And of course, we're doing that to conserve petroleum and uh, hopefully reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The plans are that by 2030, 50% of vehicles on the road will run on electricity rather than on fossil fuels. The extensive grid needed will require thicker cables. Burying these in the ground will be quite disruptive. Of course, the basic question, as far as reducing carbon dioxide emissions by switching to electricity, is how the electricity to charge car batteries is to be generated. There's no saving if coal, petroleum, or natural gas are burned to produce electricity. Hydropower, geothermal, tidal, solar power are ideal, but these cannot meet all the electrical requirements. Nuclear power could, but there is the issue of public acceptance. Hydrogen can be used in fuel cells to power electric vehicles, but most hydrogen is generated by reacting methane with water, and that reaction releases carbon dioxide. Burning biomass, that is plant material or animal waste, can make a significant contribution if it is carbon neutral. For example, burning sugarcane waste to produce electricity can be carbon neutral if the amount of carbon dioxide released is countered by carbon dioxide taken up from the air through photosynthesis when the sugarcane is growing. Many technologies will have to work cohesively to squeeze out the increased electrical energy needed to power all those electric cars that are destined to hit the road. And we better get those cars on the road because about a third of all greenhouse gases escaping into the atmosphere are produced by road vehicle emissions. Another benefit of electric cars is that they do not produce the tiny particles of unburned hydrocarbons that are a major cause of air pollution and are linked to cardiovascular and lung disease. And that is something that isn't talked about that much. You know, the um, air pollution that is caused by the tiny particles that are released from the exhaust of uh, automobiles. So, um, you know, the, uh, obviously electrical cars have uh, an environmental benefit. But, you know, it's also very important to consider uh, where that electricity comes from. Now, here in Quebec, we're pretty well off because um, most of our electricity is generated by hydropower. Well, what does that mean, hydropower? Uh, that is, you know, in, in one sense, misinterpreted by a lot of people because they think it, it is a question of, of, of turning water into, uh, into energy. Well, no, that's not how it works. Uh, hydropower works by using moving water, fast streams of water, as as you know, uh, as the, used by as, as you know the product of using dams properly, and uh, that fast flowing water can then turn the turbine, which is used to generate electricity, and that turbine uh, then will produce the heat that is needed to uh, boil water 
uh, and uh, that water would then further turn turbines uh, because the steam creates the pressure. Uh, so water is indeed used to generate electricity, but the water is not being converted into energy per se. Okay, but anyway, here uh, we have a lot of hydropower in in, uh, in Quebec, so our electricity is relatively cheap compared to uh, to other uh, people. Okay, I think uh, uh, I also have a, an answer to uh, my question about the darkness of uh, our stool if you are taking Pepto-Bismol. And... Uh, it's bismuth sulfide, bismuth sulfide. Uh, Pepto-bismol, uh, as the name implies, contains uh, a bismuth compound, which is uh, bismuth subsalicylate. And there is uh, sulfur in our intestine from the breakdown of uh, proteins uh, that uh, have uh, sulfur-containing amino acids. And that further breaks down, uh, that can produce hydrogen sulfide, which is one of the components in, in flatus. And if you happen to have some bismuth ions in the intestine, it will combine with the sulfide, sulfide and you get bismuth sulfide. And uh, that can be kind of unnerving because, of course, uh, if your stool turns black, that can be a scary situation uh, because it could be caused by uh, blood somewhere in the in the digestive tract. But if you remember that you've taken Pepto-Bismol, uh, then uh, keep in mind that that black can be due to uh, bismuth sulfide. Okay, so since that was answered, uh, I'm going to throw another question your way. When is the first time that the expression official beverage of was used in conjunction with a major event? And what was that beverage? And these days, of course, we see this kind of stuff all the time, uh, that some something is sponsored by you know, Coca-Cola or, or Evian, and then you see the logos all over the place. <laughs> you know, if, if you... Uh, watch European hockey, uh, the, the players are, are essentially billboards for all kinds of uh, advertising, and many of them are, are beverages of all kinds. Well, uh, so my question uh, is all about that. When is the first time that the expression official beverage of was used in conjunction with a major event and what beverage was that? And uh, I'll give you a little bit of a clue. We're going back some ways in history in order to answer this question. All right, I need answers. So let's see if uh, Kenny, who's on the line, has one. Hey, Kenny. Hey, good morning. I got to know. How are you doing, uh, Joe? Good. So uh, I got the answer for the uh, beverage that first came out. It was uh, it was French white cola. <laughs> what what do you think was sponsored? I mean, what what event was it sponsoring? Oh, uh, the uh, the uh, the the ads and uh, commercials uh, before they, uh, before Coca Cola came out. It was French uh, white Coca Cola uh, Coca Cola in 1885. No, no, but you're not. You didn't listen properly to the question that I asked. 
the question was about what event was sponsored by a beverage. What was oh, the, the first sponsors, such event? Uh, could, could be a commercial or something? No, no, it was an event, uh, a world-class event. Well, class, uh, could be, uh, I'm guessing, a car, a car show or something? No, it wasn't. Neither was it the Olympics, which some people suggested. Uh, uh, although the Olympics, of course, have been sponsored by Coca-Cola, that's for sure. But that was not the first, uh, first such thing. The question I asked was, when is the first time the expression official beverage of was used in conjunction with a major event? And what was that beverage? Okay, so we're still looking for the answer to uh, to that one. I had an interesting question texted in, actually. Uh, someone wants to know when was the term cold turkey first used when someone was trying to quit smoking and why cold turkey? Uh, I, <laughs> that that befuddles me. Although I remember something, reading something once about how when when uh, people were trying to give up uh, opium, and uh, uh, when you are withdrawing from an opiate, uh, you get of course many kind of symptoms. Uh, one of which is that you get goose pimples and that your skin looks like the skin of a turkey. I remember reading something about that. So that may be where it derives from. But if anyone has a, a, a better answer to that, if you really know uh, where it's coming from, let me know. Okay, uh, we also have Jeff on the phone. Jeff. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Border guards, police, etc., confiscate large amount of drugs, heroin, cocaine, multiple types of pills, Things have gone to court, courts have been settled. They're no longer needed for evidence. How are they disposed of? Uh, they're burned, incinerated. Okay, incinerated doesn't give smoke that can be dangerous or anything? No, no, it will be uh, basically incinerated to carbon dioxide and nitrogen and uh, you know, these are high temperature incinerators and uh, no no intact molecule come, comes out. So there's no point in standing around an incinerator trying to inhale the fumes. No, that's uh, just wondering if there'd be any danger. Thanks no, for there's something no... I'm here. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm still looking for the answer to the first sponsor as an official beverage of, and uh, maybe you need a clue. Uh, it was actually in the 19th century. So we're going back some ways. It was in the 19th uh, century. Okay, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit here about herbs. What do the following have in common? Ginkgo biloba, St. John's wort, echinacea, ginseng, garlic, saw palmetto, and valerian root. And of course, if uh, you said these are all herbs that's supposed to have medicinal effects, then of course you're correct. Uh, they're very highly, uh, they're very popular. A lot of these things are sold. They gross billions of dollars a year. Now they have something else in common. 
They're widely advertised on the internet and on social media sites with a variety of misleading claims. And the popularity of these products started to increase dramatically in 1994 when the US passed a law, the Dietary Supplement and Health Education Act, which severely restricted the Food and Drug Administration's control over dietary supplements. The act allowed virtually any substance to be sold as a dietary supplement, as long as no claims were made about preventing, treating, diagnosing, or curing any specific disease. As it turns out, a survey published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that more than half of websites selling these products made exactly those kind of claims. Furthermore, hardly any mentioned possible cross-reactions with prescription drugs. The promoters of these products take advantage of the fact that many people believe in the myth that if something comes from a natural source, it must therefore be safe. It is curious how so many patients are concerned about side effects of prescription drugs and don't give a thought to adverse reactions that may be triggered by herbal products. I'm not saying that concerns about prescription drugs are not warranted. Of course they are. Many people, particularly seniors, often end up taking inappropriate medications. This may be because they visit several physicians who prescribe medications unaware that other doctors have also done so, or patients may not have been advised by their pharmacist about possible cross-reactions. Such cross-reactions can also take place between prescription drugs and herbal remedies. St. John's wort, the most popular herbal antidepressant, is a good case in point. A couple of years ago, researchers discovered that it reduced the activity of cyclosporin, an anti-rejection medication used after transplants, as well as of indinavir, a protease inhibitor used to treat AIDS. Of course, this is not an issue for most people and the cross-reaction did not catch the attention of the lay press. But when a study conducted at the Medical University of South Carolina found that St. John's wort reduces the activity of dextromethorphan, a common cough remedy, and that of alprazolam, a widely used anti-anxiety agent, many people know that as Xanax, then that got the public's and the, the press's attention. The drugs are eliminated twice as fast in the presence of St. John's wort. The reason is that St. John's wort increases the activity of an enzyme system known as cytochrome P450. These enzymes are extensively involved in drug metabolism. In fact, probably about half of all medications are broken down in this fashion. Obviously, the interaction of herbal medications with prescription drugs is not a trivial problem. It must be understood that herbal supplements have biological activity and have to be considered as drugs. Steps need to be taken so that they also regulate as such. It is unreasonable to have a double standard when it comes to regulating prescription drugs and herbal remedies. And yet, we do have such a double standard. And we do have that here in Canada. A prescription drug is much, much more strictly regulated. The um, companies have to submit all kinds of evidence, double-blind, controlled, randomized studies before the drug is approved, whereas approval for herbal remedies comes very easily. Uh, just dig up some sort of reference from any, any scientific 
literature uh, may or may not come from a peer-reviewed publication or come up with some anecdotal stories and you can get the thing um, allowed uh, as long as it is safe. So when a, a so-called NPN number is given to a herbal product in Canada, it really doesn't mean very much. It means that it is safe as far as we can tell and that there is at least some sort of evidence, although it does not have to come from randomized trials, that shows some efficacy. Uh, because generally these substances are, are thought to be innocuous and therefore the government isn't all that interested in regulating them. They should be. Uh, I think we have Diane on the phone. Hey, Hi Diane. There. How are you? Good. Is it re still regarding uh, one of the biggest events that a soda company sponsored? Uh, what? So, what's your answer? Oh, uh, my answer would be I would say a Super Bowl halftime show. No, this was quite a quite a way before Super Bowls. Oh, you mean like in the 1700s or 16? 1800s. Oh, 1800s. Yeah, okay. So, you know what? I'll have to let you go then and have a great afternoon. Okay, bye. But uh, Mike has come through with indeed the correct answer. Uh, the first official beverage... This was the, at the 1851 Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace in London. And the sponsor was Schweppes. Jacob Schweppes, a jeweler turned inventor, was the first to produce carbonated beverages on a commercial scale. In 1783, he designed the Geneva system that generated carbon dioxide from chalk and sulfuric acid. And he used that to put bubbles into water. And he uh, invented a compressing pump to make sure that enough of the gas went into the uh, water. And the Schwepp Company was formed in 1790. And then in 1851, they were the major sponsor of the great exhibition at the Crystal Palace in London, which was a wonderful uh, exhibit. Uh, and it uh, at that time featured the largest glass building uh, ever made. Unfortunately, it eventually burned down. Uh, it was moved uh, to uh, uh, another location in London. And of course, uh, that is still known, that area is still known as Crystal Palace. And that's why there's a football team in, in London called uh, Crystal Palace. But yeah, the Schweppes was the first uh, such exhibitor. Uh, there was a fountain a major fountain in the middle of the uh, exhibit. And uh, that was uh, also sponsored by Schweppes. No, it didn't produce bubbling water. All right, I got another story for you. And this time we will go back to the 1700s. <clears throat> Lady Mary Wortley Montague arrived in Istanbul in 1716 as the wife of the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. She wasn't a doctor, she wasn't a scientist, but nevertheless, she played a pivotal role in the history of immunology. Well, what is immunology? It is the study of the protective mechanisms that our body uses to fend off attack by foreign substances, such as bacteria, fungi, parasites, viruses, cancer cells, toxins, 
collectively, all of these attackers are called antigens. Lady Montague had lost a brother to smallpox and had survived an infection herself, of which she was constantly reminded by the scars on her face. So no wonder that she took an interest in a practice to ward off the disease that she encountered in Istanbul. Pus taken from a blister of a person suffering a mild case of smallpox was scratched into the arm or leg of an uninfected person. Should this person be subsequently infected, the disease would be mild. Lady Montague was so impressed that she had her son inoculated and on her return to England, enthusiastically recommended variolation, as the procedure was called. It wasn't perfect, since an inoculated individual could still infect others, and sometimes would still contract the disease, sometimes in a serious way. Edward Jenner sought to improve the procedure and discovered that inoculation with pus taken from the blister of a person infected with cowpox, which was a mild disease, would also protect against smallpox. This was the first vaccine, the term deriving from the Latin for cow. At the time, there was no knowledge of microbes, such as the virus that causes smallpox, and certainly nothing was known about the mechanism that resulted in immunization. The situation began to be clarified when Louis Pasteur demonstrated that chicken cholera was caused by a bacterium and could be prevented by inoculation with heat-weakened bacteria. German physician Robert Koch isolated the bacteria that caused anthrax, and Pasteur created a vaccine with an attenuated form of the bacterium. Although the work of Pasteur and Koch established the germ theory of disease, there was little understanding of how immunity was confirmed in terms of chemistry. And then working under Koch, Emil von Behring confronted diphtheria, a bacterial disease that at the time was known as the strangling angel of children because it caused swelling of the throat to the extent that breathing was impaired. Von Behring made the remarkable discovery that a child could be cured of the disease by being injected with serum from a horse that had been inoculated with the diphtheria-causing bacterium. Paul Ehrlich then worked out a method to standardize extracts of the serum and deaths from diphtheria plummeted. It was at this point that Ehrlich ventured a theory about what was going on. The horse serum contained a chemical, an antitoxin that neutralized the toxin which was another chemical produced by bacteria. He theorized that white blood cells feature a large number of potential antitoxins on their surface, and when one of them matches the molecular structure of the toxin, it latches onto it and prevents it from doing any damage. Ehrlich called these antitoxins receptors and visualized the toxins fitting into them much like a key fits into a lock. Then, when such a fit occurred, the cell would produce more receptors, some of which would be released into the bloodstream and hunt down more of the toxin molecules. He called these liberated receptors antibodies and described them as magic bullets, since they would interact only with the specific substance that caused them to be released in the first place. Amazingly, Ehrlich 
was essentially bang on with his description of antibodies. And of course, since that time, uh, we have learned much, much more about antibodies and also how to generate some of them in the lab. And there's a whole class of antibodies that can now be made in the lab called monoclonal antibodies that are used in the treatment of uh, cancer because they can latch onto cancer cells because they have learned to interact with the proteins that are present on the surface of those cells. Well, once more, we have run out of time. Uh, but as I always like to tell you, we will be back, same place, same station next week. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>